this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 15, our review of last week's Liver Connect and Nash Connect meetings, sponsored by the Chronic Liver Disease Foundation. Today's episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami is sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals, a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for Nash. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmetarum, is a once-daily, oral, thyroid hormone receptor beta-selective agonist that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH in the liver. Resmetarum is currently being evaluated in two Phase three clinical studies, Maestro NASH and Maestro NAFLD-1, designed to demonstrate multiple benefits in patients with NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. This conversation captures my interview with Zobair Yunasi, president of the Chronic Liver Disease Foundation, a hepatology key opinion leader and truly a world leader in epidemiological and public health issues related to fatty liver disease. You'll learn a little bit about Zobair's background, and more important, we discuss CLDF's goals for Liver Connect and Nash Connect, the reasoning in making Nash Connect half-day session about health disparity issues in epidemiology and treatment, the scarcity of global public health solutions for NAFL today, and how the interplay of medical and socioeconomic issues will shape NAFL and its treatments going forward. This is long for what we call a Surfing Nash conversation, about 23-24 minutes, but absolutely worth a listen. Enjoy. This conference addressed important fatty liver and public health issues in unique, creative ways. Our discussions in this episode reflect the importance of the issues and the innovativeness of the approach. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Just take a couple of minutes before we get started. Tell our listeners, most of them probably know or know of you, but some of whom won't, a little bit about yourself and your history and how you got to where you are right now and what you're doing. And then end that with one fact that we wouldn't know about you if you didn't happen to mention it today. Chronic Liver Disease Foundation President Zobair Yunasi. <laughs> okay. And, and I started actually my, my career after finishing a, a fellowship at the Scripps Clinic Research Foundation in California to the Cleveland Clinic as a hepatologist and senior researcher. During my fellowship, at Scripps Clinic, I also did a Master of Public Health and specifically focusing on sort of public health issues as well as outcomes research. I was at the Cleveland Clinic for about five years and there I really started my career in two areas of pathology. Outcomes research, specifically around patient-reported outcomes and quality of life. And then really started the research on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That term was coined when I was at the Cleveland Clinic in 1997 and really led to the paper that ultimately sort of started the field of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And when I moved to ANOVA Health System, and currently I'm the president of the Medicine Service Line here and chairman of Medicine, we continue that theme of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and aspects that are related to clinical research, clinical uh, trial, but most importantly, outcomes research in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that's where I am. We publish about 20 or 30 articles a year and are active in this field uh, for the past 20 years. Yeah, we have we have published over 600 now. So, and a, a lot of it is related to fatty liver disease, I would say, the vast majority. Okay, so what's the one thing that your audience wouldn't know if you didn't tell them? What they may not know is that I'm a scotch drinker. <laughs> it is one thing that I have that I, as a hepatologist, you're supposed to limit your, your alcohol consumption, which I do, but I, I do enjoy uh, 
a great single malt scotch. Are you a collector? I am about maybe 20 or 30 different kinds. What's the best bottle you have? Well, I have a, a good Yamazaki, an old one, but my day, daily sort of consumption is a brand called Oban. I know them both. And I'm not particularly a scotch drinker, but they're both great brands. And we've had 65, 70 guests on this podcast, and you're the first person who ever cited his scotch collection. One more way in which you are unique, my friend. So just to start, this was the second Liver Connect and second Nash Connect, I guess. How did you folks come up with the idea in 2020 or 2021 or whenever that this was a program that CLDF wanted to start and then specifically why Nash is a almost separate cutout within it, both? Well, I think the most important issue was that we wanted to have a, a program that could complement a lot of other scientific programs that we go to that specifically are going to connect the practice of hepatology, gastroenterology with what we see in the scientific sort of um, meetings. And it's really very practical for our colleagues, not only in just, just gastroenterology and hepatology, but our other our advanced uh, providers, practitioners, our endocrinology colleagues, especially what involves non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this came out of that sort of an idea to make chronic liver disease foundation be the vehicle to be this connection, not only between the scientific meetings and providers, but also connect the industry to, to providers and really at this point, even the public health issues to providers so people have a comprehensive of understanding of the entire liver disease, but specifically some areas that are much more important in terms of needs for awareness, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In addition to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, are there other areas that you think there are particular education gaps that need to be met? Well, certainly I think alcoholic liver disease, which is number one cause of, of liver transplantation in the United States, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is second in the case for liver transplantation. You know, these, these rates are actually going up and, and I think we need to have a better understanding of, of alcoholic liver disease and also so hopefully better treatment of alcoholic liver disease. You know, some of the cholestatic liver diseases, primary sclerosis and cholangitis being one, there is really no treatment that's approved for primary sclerosis and cholangitis that could help these patients. Hepatitis, hepatitis B uh, is a major challenge worldwide. And of course now hepatitis D, Delta virus. These are the areas that we need to really focus on. So there are, there are plenty of areas that there is an opportunity to improve knowledge. I think that's fantastic. I was impressed as a non-scientist. I mean, you People who listen to this podcast know my last natural science course was high school biology. I'm self-taught beyond that. I thought that throughout the meeting, the presentations were exceptionally accessible. They were scientific, and yet you didn't have to know all the content to be able to figure out what mattered and what you were talking about. I thought, and I think that was really well done. I think the idea was to, number one, make it really accessible. And not only in terms of content, but also accessing the meeting. So this was in 2000. 21, when we had the first meeting, it was the first live meeting for hepatology because it was around April of 2021. But we decided to, to have it done outdoors because of COVID sort of peak and then really provide the opportunity to have live meeting available also virtually. Now we carried that philosophy again this year where we had the meeting live with 400 individuals participated and then it was available virtually. There was, a, I think the last count was somewhere between 650 to 700 other individuals individuals participate live during the entire meeting. So this capacity to use new technology to reach more colleagues across the world at some point is going to give us sort of the opportunity to, to get the word out to even a larger audience. That's great. I was going to ask about the geographic reach because one of the things that surprised me as this podcast started to get a little bit of traction was how many countries we were getting downloaded in every week. A typical week here is about 25. It goes up as high as 30 and Buzzsprout tells me we've had downloads from 95 different countries 
countries since we went live in July of 20. Do you have any sense of how many countries were um, tuning in remotely? Now, I don't have the numbers for this meeting, but Product Liberty Foundation is also collaborating with a global liver council that we have and global NASH council that we have. That's about 40 different countries that are members of that. And as we get this more solidified in the future, all members of these different councils that we have will be invited, not only themselves to participate, but also to bring in their colleagues' countries. So that's where we're going with this you know, meeting. That's great. The world can't possibly get enough education on these issues. So that's a fantastic thing. Going to the agenda for 2022, the second Liver Connect, I thought the decision to make the Nash Connect session so much about health disparities was a really interesting choice. And uh, I'm wondering what it was that motivated you to make that the focus of that particular session and what you're trying to achieve. Well, I think there were a couple of reasons. One is that Nafaldi was initially thought to be the disease of sort of the Western countries, the United States, and that's absolutely not true anymore. It's a global disease and it's impacting probably other regions of the world even more rapidly than us. I mean, the highest prevalence and also the highest burden of disease in the Middle East and Asia. So, and, 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 and a lot of this is related to, it's really a, a sort of a poster child. Nafaldi is a poster child, sort of health disparities that impact, uh, you know, that causes a disease. You know, the fact that the prevalence is driven by nutrition and exercise and that drives the metabolic conditions of visceral obesity and type 2 diabetes. These all have major health disparities factors that impact them. So that's not only true just for the United States. You know, as you know, the, the prevalence of Nafaldi and Nafaldi and even progressive liver disease is highest in the United States within Hispanic Americans and the world, as I mentioned, in the Middle East and Asia, North Africa. So again, we need to sort of take a broader perspective about this disease, that this disease is driven by factors that are impacted from a risk standpoint by some of the socioeconomic issues that we don't always think about as physicians. The second thing is that we're developing new non-invasive tests to risk stratify patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The highest risk has to be. And, and sometimes we forget the fact that some of these NITs or these tests may not perform the same way in one population versus another population. So we have to be very careful that as we develop these tests, that we validate these tests across the world. This is not a hepatitis C RNA test that probably performs exactly the same, no matter where you are, as, you use, as, as long as you use the same platform. These, a lot of these tests actually have to use the environment of the patient. And that environment environment changes when you're dealing with different ethnic and, and geographical and regional issues. And the last is that we need we are developing treatment. And again, because we have disparities in terms of clinical trial enrollment, because the clinical trial of drugs are focused on getting approval from the EMA and FDA, they basically enroll the type of patients that would make it most likely for the drug to be approved. But forgetting the fact that a large, probably larger number of, of patients with NASH would be outside the FDA and the EMA sort of approach. So just to make sure that we then take the efficacy of these drugs and make sure that it's effective, not only in the Western population, but also in the rest of the world. And finally, which is, I think is probably more important, is that the awareness about this disease. The awareness is dismal in the United States and even Europe, especially for the frontline providers like primary care physicians or in the 
technologist. If you take this low awareness about Nafaldi to the rest of the world, it's even worse. So you can't really make a dent in this disease until you actually raise awareness about a disease among the stakeholders. And there is no more important stakeholder about this disease than not only the providers, but also policymakers. And when we when we looked at the policies, national policies, that even mentioned non-alcoholic fatty lipid disease across the world, you'll see that there is almost none, none that has sort of a national policy. And this is going to be a major challenge. If we don't address that, we're not going to really make a huge difference in, in this disease in the future. I think you and I are both going to be in Barcelona in May for uh, the first innovations conference. We had Jeff on, Lazarus, telling the story of nothing getting higher than uh, 50 or whatever it was. And one of his European friends saying, well, you know, that might be a passing grade. And him saying, you know, not in the States, it wouldn't be. Are there places that you look at and say, well, they've got this piece right, even if they don't have the rest of it? Are there, have we gotten to the point yet where there are places that are doing well enough with elements of public policy around NAFL that we can say that's what other people should be looking to? I think the United Kingdom has some good programs that could be expanded and modeled. I think there are some good uh, programs that are getting started in, in the United States. I think there are patients, entities here that can help with at least raising awareness at that level. But I think most of the world is really starting from level of zero and or maybe one. So I think it, it has to be a way that we're raising the awareness about the importance of this disease to get at the policy level's perspective. On the other hand, then we should leave sort of some regional differences because the challenges are different in a closed system of healthcare than an open system like the United States. So that sort of country-specific and region-specific characteristic of the policy should remain our regional sort of challenges. Raising this to the WHO to even consider non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as an important non-communicable disease would be very important. Yeah, I know that's something that Jeff and Jorn Schottenberg have talked about when they've come on this podcast to talk about the work that they're doing. The idea that WHO has not historically been mentioned NAFLD in any of their liver directives or policies is, is, I agree, I think it's a striking thing. The folks put on a, a wonder, I think a really excellent group of presentations about health disparities. I think it was interesting that it's not a subject they talk about, so folks really had to dig down and go back and do the basic research, which made for, I think, some fascinating presentations. I, I'm wondering uh, what you hope will have come out of the Thursday session. You mentioned a couple of areas where you'd like to influence awareness. How do you see that session translating into, say, creating awareness among public policymakers or among treating physicians in the different markets? I, I think it's going to be important to remember that this disease is so complex from not only risk factor standpoint, the social and socioeconomic food and security aspect of what drives Nafoli, that when we're looking at an NIT performance or a, or a, a target for treatment, that those are really, those are really the, the tip of the iceberg. I think with over the next few years, as we develop those NITs, we need to really focus on how to raise awareness through education about the importance of disease and clarify which patients would be at highest risk and how to stratify those patients with these NITs. Of course, the other important thing that I think will hopefully will come out of this will be to develop care pathways for patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that involves not just a hepatologist, that involves more than a hepatologist, that you connect, that you use, utilize the technology of, say, virtual 
care that we are now used to because of COVID to now connect a nutrition and dietitian who was very hard to get five years ago as a part of your team or an exercise specialist or an endocrinologist to now connect and really develop these care pathways because at the end of the day, it'll be through care pathways that then we can deliver the optimal care and, and not only, you know, a treatment, but, but even management of these patients. I'm hoping that by expanding this view in some ways to include others in this larger tent that would include not just hepatologists, but other providers, but also then understand that in order to make a dent, we need to sort of raise awareness and focus on which patients from this really universe of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease would be at highest risk and should be targeted. That's interesting. So one thing I wonder about is, I think Dr. Harrison mentioned this, the idea that we've now got multiple people putting out multiple pathways. He thought that would be confusing. He just said, we should all have one way of doing this. There's another school of thought that says that if everybody becomes aware on their own terms, eventually it'll all converge. Do you have a preference for whether organizations put out their own or whether we try to get everybody to adhere relatively quickly to one common guideline or way of doing things? I I think at some point, everything that folks are going to do has to be evidence-based. And if you really are looking at evidence seriously and and accurately, you'll come to the same conclusion. You know, there may be some small tweaks here and there based on, for example, for risk stratification, what will be your second test? Not not what your first test would be, but what your second test would be. And that's okay because that will give options to folks to have more than one options. But I suspect in terms of risk stratification, we will have probably more of a unity in terms of these guidelines coming together. It would be very hard to, if you're developing evidence-based guidelines or algorithms, that would be very different from another one, because otherwise, you know, somebody's not following evidence-based sort of assessment. In terms of treatment, the first treatment is, I think everyone is in agreement with the first treatment, which is basically lifestyle modification. I don't think anybody would argue against that. Now, in terms of, you know, medication, we just have to see what data is out there. And if we, and we're lucky enough that in 10 years, we have 10 different medications, then you have to talk, you have to basically pick your patients based on personalized medicine sort of approach and find what target should be the best target for that specific patient. So at some point, I think it's going to all come into a unity and cohesiveness in the future. I'm optimistic about that. I am too. And I guess my view of how the world works is that even if people engage things in seven different ways right now, your point is, I think, dead on. The evidence will ultimately drive the discussion and evidence may leave two options or three options, but it isn't going to leave eight options. I'm, I'm more interested in how we get specialties to align on their role in things so that you don't have, you know, if you think about baseball, the worst thing that happens in a baseball outfield, I should probably use a more global sports metaphor, please forgive, is that the right field or the center field will look at each other, no one goes for the ball and it drops on the, on the ground when either one of them could have caught it. My only hope is that as all this evolves, that no patient will fall through the net. Every patient will get caught somewhere. I think that's very important, but I've been sort of through this journey over the past 25 years, is that initially we had to convince our, our hepatology colleagues that this is an important disease. Of course, we are 100% there now. And then we had to actually take our gastroenterology colleagues to, to convince them that it's an important disease. And maybe we're about 80% there. We started actually working with our colleagues in endocrinology and with the ACE guideline that Ken Cousy and Scott Isaacs, my myself and Mary Ranella and others are actually working on, hopefully it will come out, there's going to be more onboarding of endocrinologists. The group that we need to really start the dialogue with even more seriously is our primary care physicians and how to engage them that this is an important disease, that they see a lot of these patients in their daily practices. And it's important to remember that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a complication of diabetes. So if you have no problem sending your diabetic patient to get an eye exam for ethanopathy or check a a 
a creatinine test to check their kidney function, why can't you actually do a simple test to look to see if they have significant liver disease or not? And I think that sort of a philosophy and approach is about to also come to our primary care physicians, hopefully over the next few years. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And uh, I know that the initiative that uh, the AGA started through Dr. Conwall brought in primary care, even in the early papers, the two papers that were drafted last year. So let, let's hope that that goes forward. I think your point's dead on there. Um, okay, so shifting from Thursday to Saturday, I thought the format of the Saturday morning Nash sessions, basically a roundtable with a couple of short presentations, was different. How did you come to decide to do it that way? And what were you hoping to accomplish? You know, I think my own sort of feeling is that when we go to all these different meetings and we hear superb experts give a lecture, lectures have value, but limited value. If you have 10 people in the, in the panel and you get everyone's insight and input about something, I think that's a lot more valuable and it engages the audience a lot more about the specific issues that they're interested in. So that was the whole idea to actually have short presentations to set this this stage and then have the large panel to then really address specific issues and questions that were raised by the audience, both from not only from audience that we had in the room, but also through the internet with our virtual audience as well. Did that session go as you hoped? Were there things about it that particularly you liked or, or you might do a little differently you know, next I, year? I'm biased, obviously, but I loved it. I thought it was great. I think having questions answered by others in the panel, sometimes, you know, not completely agreeing with each other was exactly the way we want to see this. So I think that format works very well. Uh, so I'm less biased and I completely agree with you. In fact, my favorite moments were moments where we went from somebody providing a theoretical answer to someone else going on and saying, well, here's what I would do with the patient, right? And, and that, that, I thought that came together really neatly. Is there anything that you would like people who walked away from that session to think about or do differently as a result of having heard it? Or were you basically providing baseline and background education for folks who are already motivated. The key to this, from my perspective, is to point at one thing that is absolutely, I think, is the heart of our challenge moving forward, and it's about awareness of the disease at all level. If I can, you know, ask each one of the members of the audience, as well as faculty, to be the ambassadors out there when they hear something like this this session for fatty liver disease, to take the message out and be ambassadors for, for folks to, to understand that this is an important Diseases. It's a growing disease. It's just, there are lots of challenges. It's not going to be very simple to resolve, but we are, we are going to be at it. And we need more folks to understand that we need a larger village to make a dent in this important liver disease. Amen to that. Anything that you can envision yet for the third Liver Connect that will uh, strengthen or broaden this fantastic session you put together last weekend? I think it'll be more of the same, probably a larger audience virtually as well as in person. We do actually obtain surveys of our members. Remember, CLDF has a large number of of members across the United States, actually even across the world. So we're hoping to get more insight from them about what are some of the topics amongst these hot topics that we think are important that they want to hear about and really design this educational sort of program for 2023 based on the input that we get. What input that you got in particular helped shape what you did this year? The fact that there was a lot of practical information that people received was very important to our 
provider audience. We also had good interaction from the industry audience who was there, that this field sometimes can feel like frustrating in terms of drug treatment, but there's so much enthusiasm and so much opportunities here to really connect with the practitioners at the front line to understand their issues and address that, how a new test is going to come to the market and how the payers are going to address this. We had a payer session actually and on Thursday also that was a parallel thing. So hearing from actual practitioners for GI and hepatology was probably a, a very important thing that I heard uh, universally from from our audience in addition to the, to the scientific content. Getting providers to hear from payers and then getting payers to think about from a more holistic point of view, I think are both going to be really important things in the years to come. I couldn't agree more on that. So what question haven't I asked you yet about Liver Connect or what message do you want to deliver about the meeting or the work of CLDF that floors yours? What would you like to share? Well, with CLDF is probably the, in my view, and again, I'm biased, is that it provides the most comprehensive educational activities to all stakeholders. So we've started, of course, with physicians, with hepatologists, gastroenterologists, and we're expanding to the APPs, not only within just GI, but endocrinology and, and, and even our fellows. It's just to understand that stakeholders are large. So payers, industry, and even policymakers are going to be hopefully a part of, of the future of what CLDF can reach out to and make it a part of this larger tent that, that then ultimately can make a difference and changing trajectory of all liver diseases and specifically non-alcoholic fat liver disease. It's a great goal. Let's 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 see what we all can do collectively to get there. And certainly, uh, CLDF has has been playing and will continue to play a major role in all that. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with modeler par excellence Chris Estes and a group of key opinion leaders to discuss how the things we can learn in epidemiologic modeling can help shape drug development. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.